0: There's Peter Pan. And I think the thing that captures us about Peter Pan, at least when you were a child, I don't know if you've thought about him for a while, is that he can fly. And he doesn't age, is another plus. Amen. <laughs> and it just captures the child's imagination when Peter Pan comes to visit Wendy and the the Darling kids, right? In their London house. And he teaches them how to fly. A little bit of pixie dust. You know, pixie dust is the magical stuff. And then this command from Peter Pan. Think of the happiest things. They're the same as having wings. So, a little bit of pixie dust, thinking of the happiest things, and now you have wings, and they're able to fly. And of course there's a song, you can fly, you can fly, you can fly. Hence our title. You can fly. And Peter Pan is not entirely wrong when he says that you can fly. Think of the happiest things as the same as having wings. It's not entirely wrong. It's not entirely bad. If you're in a bad place, sometimes you just need to remember the good things in life and remember the goodness of God. The happiest things can give you wings. Not Red Bull. But the happiest things. Looking at God in your life. and I don't know about pixie dust. I don't know if that's a metaphor for you in your life. But... Peter Pan, the point is, is not entirely wrong. There is a, there is something that God can do in us that will help us to fly. Now, fortunately, Isaiah is a lot clearer than Peter Pan. Okay, we don't have to interpret pixie dust and what are the happy thoughts because Isaiah is actually going to show us what God will do for us when we need to move forward and when we're stuck in London and we need to get to Neverland. How do you get there? Well, you need to fly. And so Isaiah is going to address the people of Israel at a time when they need to get out of where they are. They need to fly. And he's going to show them how God will give them the wings to do that. Okay? So you may remember when we opened Isaiah, and it's on your bookmark, so it's not completely irrelevant, that there are three parts to this book. I call them movements. Because if you're following a symphony... A concerto is a type of a symphony in which generally a concerto has three movements. It begins really fast-paced, really stormy, really exciting. The second movement takes its time. It eases the listener back into a place you felt anxious, now feel calm again. And then it moves to the third movement, and the third movement usually ends with a climax and a clash and a, whoo, I was so glad I spent the 30 minutes listening to that concerto. Concertos are played by an orchestra and generally led by an instrument which is highlighted. If it's a piano concerto, it means the pianist is the one in the forefront. The orchestra backs him up. The book of Isaiah is much like a concerto. It's much like an orchestra. And Isaiah is putting God at the forefront, and he's he's writing this beautiful orchestra behind what God wants to say to the nation. With that said, then, chapters 1 through 39 are our first movement. That's what we've covered up to this point. And we move through them fairly briskly because it's a lot of judgment. That's the message of 1 through 39. It's very simple. Isaiah is telling Israel, do not trust in Egypt or in any other nation to deliver you from your political turmoils because they will lead you to barrenness in the wilderness. Trust rather in Yahweh. And we saw that lesson over and over stormy first movement well remember how we ended last week this this foreshadow the Babylonians come to visit King Hezekiah oh you're miraculously healed Maybe take a look at your wonderful God and land and he shows them everything and Isaiah comes up and says what did you show those people who were they Babylonians can you believe it they came to see me uh, what did you show them Everything. There's nothing I didn't show them. And then Isaiah just does like the whole face palm. Ay, 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 Hezekiah. They will take everything you showed them. They will take it all. There's this foreshadow. It's saying Israel is going to fall to this Babylonian empire because they're not trusting Yahweh. When you open Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is talking to the future when that had already, when that, how do you see this in the future sense? He's pretending this has already happened to Israel and now he's going to give him words of comfort. Movement number two is a poet's words of comfort to a people who have lost everything, to a people who've lost their home, who have doubts about who their God is because he let them lose their home, who are now living in a foreign land, who are oppressed, their dreams are crushed, Isaiah from chapter 40 through 55 is talking to them. He's saying, there's, it's going to get bad, so let me give you comfort ahead of time so that you will know when it happens, God is still in control. Okay? So chapters 1 through 39, movement 1, you're looking at the 700s BC. Chapters 40 through 55, we're going to enter... 586 B.C. to 540 B.C. So we're a bit in the future here, okay? Um, this is covering the same timeline that Jeremiah, who we studied earlier, Jeremiah was preaching. And Ezekiel was also preaching, but Ezekiel was in Babylon while Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. Okay? So now you kind of see things overlapping a little bit. So that's, that's where we are. We're going to hear words of comfort. For the next few weeks or so. And then it'll be the third movement in chapters 56 to the end. And that's the climatic finish. It's gonna talk about the new heavens and the new earth and how everything's gonna be happily ever after. Yeah? So, Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. Okay. So... When Israel's city falls, Jerusalem falls, when the temple is destroyed and dismantled and it's looted and it looks like the Babylonian God just beat Israel's God, which in that time meant your God is now powerless before their gods. So you're losing your faith. You're losing your home. You've probably watched people you love and know die in front of your eyes. You're being transported to another nation, another language. They eat unclean, impure foods. There's a different coin system. There's different gods, not just a different god, different gods. There's, there's, There's a temple for every gas station in Babylon, and you're lost, right? You're the country bumpkin from Jerusalem who's in this great empire city, Babylon, and you feel absolutely lost. And Isaiah's words of comfort, when we go through the same thing, is God wants us to know comfort. He wants us to know comfort. Even in that dark place of loss. Comfort my people. Now, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The, the, Isaiah has not been very tender up to this point, has he? Our first movement, chapters 1-39, through is all just... You are not trusting God and you better get your act together and don't lean on Egypt. It's a broken reed. It's going to go right through your hand. And then he's railing on all the nations, how they're going to fall. And there's that apocalyptic section, chapters 24 to 27, where it's like the woe to the earth. It's going to shake and the inhabitants are going to moan like they're in labor. And it's been nothing tender. But all of a sudden we turn the page to chapter 40 and it's comfort and it speak tenderly. God will at times act like a father who needs to chastise his people and shake them to get their attention. But once he gets our attention and you're like, ah, what is going on? He's like, perfect. Then he will enter like a mother and he will bring us into his arms and he will comfort us and he'll speak tenderly to us. He's the perfect parent for the human race. And I hope you've experienced both sides of God. Sometimes we need the powerful God and sometimes we need the tender God. And here he is speaking tenderly. He's stooping down to his people. They've received double for their sins. In other words, it's it's as if God's saying, look, you got more than you deserved. I know you guys sinned and went against me, but man, the Babylonians beat you up way more. And I'm going to deal with them later. And he will. Babylon's going to fall. And that's part of the words of comfort he'll be telling us in this section. He'll talk about Cyrus, this Persian ruler he's going to raise up, who's going to beat the Babylonians because the Babylonians took God's command to destroy Israel too far. So yeah, you've paid double. Yeah, it, you've way paid your debt. It's time to pardon. It's time to speak tenderly. So now, we see this comfort. In verse 3, we hear, a new direction's happening. There's a call. Verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The mouth of Yahweh has spoken. I've said it. It's going to happen. In that wilderness, there is going to be a path and the rough places will be made smooth, and I'm going to level it up. There's not going to be valleys and mountains. It's going to be a level pathway, and I am going to bring you back from Babylon on this pathway back to your home. This is restoration. This is the comfort. This is me rescuing you. Now, we've actually already seen this foretold uh, in Isaiah. Do you remember chapter 35? Just a couple pages to your left. You see in 35, verse 8, A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. This, this path is so straight, even the directionally challenged will never get lost. It's like the bowling ball with the bumper pads. No matter how crooked you throw it, it's going to bounce in the right lane, right? Some of you need those pads. I know that's how you bowl. So even you will not go astray. In verse 9, no lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing, which means they're happy. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, because usually you put a sackcloth of mourning on your head, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Think of the happiest things. It's the same as having wings. Yeah, well... It's easy until you've lost everything, and then it's not very easy to think of happy things. So what God is doing is he's trying to tell them, I'm making a way through the wilderness. Now, come my Bible literate friends. Where else have we seen a way in the wilderness? No, 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 no. Wait, wait, let me rephrase this, because you're not wrong. Where have we seen in our studies, past tense, We haven't gotten to the New Testament yet. So no spoilers, Scott. Where have we seen the way through the wilderness? The Exodus. God is doing a new Exodus. That's what Isaiah is telling them. You are in a new bondage, and just like then, I'm going to bring you through this desert place and bring you back to a new promised land. Because I can do this again and again and again. So we see this invite on the way. Now, now we'll give Scott some credit, and whoever else said John the Baptist. I heard a few of you. Scott was just the loudest. Um, (laughs) If you do want to go to Mark chapter 1, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Mark chapter 1. Now, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, quote, This verse, I will make a way through the wilderness, Um, they all quote it and apply it to John the Baptist. But Mark is unique in the sense that he opens his gospel story with Isaiah chapter 40. You know, Matthew throws it in in chapter 3. Luke throws it in in chapter 3. John throws it in later after he has the whole, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But Mark's just like, you know what? Let's start with the way. Here it is. Jesus is leading the way. So, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet... Now, he's actually going to quote Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and then Isaiah 40, verse 3. He's smushing these two verses together because both of them talk about a key word. See if you can pick it up. So, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Malachi 3, 1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Verse 3, coming now from Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight." So Mark opens his gospel by quoting Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 and takes the key word way in each of these and smushes it and says, here's the way. I'm going to open my gospel. There is a pathway going through the wilderness and it's Jesus who's at the head of this highway. It's Jesus who's leading the redeemed, the lost ones who are coming home with singing and rejoicing. He's the one who's leading us on this path. And... As if Mark knows what he's talking about. I'm being sarcastic. He does. He says in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. There it is. This is exactly what Mark wants us to do, is see Isaiah 40 as foretelling the coming of Jesus, that he, because of John the Baptist, Preparing the way, Jesus will then be able to lead his people on the way. So friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're actually walking on this path that's going through the wilderness. The wilderness of this world. It is not the fruitful Eden it's supposed to be. But Jesus is leading us on the path to get us back home. We are the exiles in Babylon. We are the ones who have lost so much. We're the ones who need comfort to hear that our sins have been pardoned, that we have paid double for our sins. We need to hear the tender words of God who's leading us on the way. And so, Mark will then continue to um, trace this theme in his gospel um, in chapter, well, later on in chapter 8, he, it's going to do a couple of things. It's going to say, while well, Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. And then he'll ask the disciples, while you were on the way, what were you talking about among yourselves? And each time they'd be like, uh, who is the greatest? And Jesus would then sit down and teach them, that's not my way. I'm about serving people. I'm about the last becoming first and the first becoming last. Why are you guys arguing and jostling for position? Because isn't that how it is when you and I lose something or we feel like we're misplaced and we're looking for comfort is our natural tendency to find comfort is to throw an elbow, throw a punch, step over someone's head and climb your way to that status or to achieve that thing or to get that recognition that will bring comfort to you. But Jesus wants us to know that that's not how it comes So Isaiah is opening up a magnificent highway for us. It's the second exodus. Matthew picks up the same thing. Matthew says, Jesus is leading us on this way. He is leading us on a new exodus journey. We're going to the promised land. So he opens his gospel with King Pharaoh trying to kill all the baby boys. Oh, but wait, in Matthew, it's King Herod trying to kill all the baby boys. And Jesus, like Moses, narrowly escapes. If you want to call it abortions, you can. He narrowly escapes those. And then, and then, as Israel has to run from Pharaoh and crosses the Red Sea, Jesus goes out to John the Baptist in the wilderness and crosses the Jordan River. And then Jesus goes in the wilderness for 40 days, as Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And then Jesus climbs a mountain in Matthew 5 and gives the new law of God called the Sermon on the Mount to the people below. Moses in Exodus 19 and 20 climbs a mountain and gives the first law of God to the people below. You see what's happening There's a new exodus underway, and this is not limited to Jews in Egypt. It's it's expanded to all nations who are following Jesus out of their prisons and into his kingdom. The New Testament picks up Isaiah and says, there is a way, and it's right now. Follow Jesus on this path. So back to Isaiah 40. Just to show you two more times when he goes into this whole new Exodus. Look at 43, verse 14. 43, 14. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. He's saying Babylon's going to fall. I am Yahweh, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. So thus says Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea. Remember the, the, the Red Sea, right? He made a way in it. And a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. He's recalling the crossing of the Red Sea. "'Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. "'Behold, I am doing a new thing. "'Now it springs forth. "'Do you not perceive it?' I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. There it is. There's a new exodus happening. And we get to be the ones walking on this path. Then finally, there's one more time it's um, alluding to this, and it's in 48 chapter, uh, chapter 48, verse 20. 48:20. 20. There, there's a few other allusions, but these are the clearest ones. 48:20 says, "Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea." Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth and say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. They shall not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. Remember how I helped your people from Egypt? I'm going to help them now to leave Babylon And what does the New Testament ask us to do? It's to leave the world. Because Jesus has taken up some of these passages, we know that this is not just about Israel returning to the land, it's also about you and I returning to our God. Because we are all as exiles and lost. So this is so much about us, as much as it is about historical Israel. So that's the good news. But if you're like me, there's always bad news lurking somewhere, isn't there? Okay, great God. What's, what's the catch? <laughs> what is? What, what? There's always something you just can't quite trust it. It's, it's too good to be true. Well, I'm gonna. We're gonna skip forward to chapter forty, verse twenty-seven. We're gonna see Israel's complaint, their worry, and then we'll go back through the chapter to see how Yahweh addresses their worry. Okay. So, here's this highway, you're going to come back home, it's going to be great, and then they're like, uh, verse 27. So Isaiah says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by God. Now, fortunately, uh, or unfortunately, I don't find this translation very helpful. I'm like, what does that even mean? Uh, What it means is, my way is hidden from Yahweh is... Why has he not seen our troubles? What I'm going through is somehow hidden from his sight. That's what it's communicating. He hasn't seen me properly. So that's what Israel's complaint is. But he hasn't seen our troubles. He's just let us, he's let let us like a lamb to the slaughter. Some God he is. And then my right is disregarded by my God. In other words, he hasn't given us any rights. He's just abandoned us. That's Israel's complaint. He doesn't see and he doesn't care. I know you've thought that once. So, they're invited to walk on this highway that we now know Jesus is leading. But but humanity's like, yeah, but, but, what, one time when you didn't help me, or that other time when you let this happen, or that other thing, or the way my family was, or why did you make me born here or there? Everyone's got their excuses. So here's how God answers it and encourages us to follow him on his way regardless of what we've gone through. So, verse 6. Isaiah 40, verse 6. Here's how he addresses us. A voice says, cry. And Isaiah, I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Think about their context and think about your own. What does this mean, all flesh is like grass and it withers away? Well, it means whoever that jerk is in your life is grass that's going to wither under the hot sun. That's really good news. It means that Babylon, who took down Israel's kingdom, is like grass. Nothing. They're here today, gone tomorrow. And, and we have a lot of grass right now in the woods, right? All the natural grasses, because it's warm and it's summer and the grasses come up. But how long do those little stalks of grass last? I'm not talking about your manicured Orange County lawn. Like, that can last as long as you water it. Natural grass, it comes and goes. Babylon is here and it's going to go. Your enemy or your situation or whatever is produced from humankind, it's not going to last. You know, when your political party loses, boo hoo. It's not going to last. Get over it. When yours wins, come off your high horse because it's not going to last. America's not going to last. Whatever you're putting your hope in, if it's not God, it's not going to last. All flesh is as grass, but this is what lasts. Verse 8 said, the word of our God will stand forever. Israel, I have made promises to you. Yes, the Babylonians have come and devastated your hopes, but my word will outlast their oppression over you. That's the news there. That's good news for us. Guys, this will outlast everything. Anything you're going through or anything someone said about you or put into your life. This is going to outlast it. And so this is where you're going to put your hope. Think of the happiest things. Well, fortunately, God's word will have plenty for you to put your mind on. Okay? You don't have to conjure this up on your own. So then in verse 9, continuing this idea of the word, it says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, you herald of good news. So he's personifying the city and its mountain as the people. Go up there and shout the good news. What good news? That the word of God endures forever. Shout his words. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense. That's another word for reward. Before him, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the good news to proclaim. This is the word of the Lord that will prevail. He is going to be your shepherd He's going to take care of us. He's going to lead us. His reward is coming with him. So, behold your God. The natural question then is okay, what God are we beholding? Because it looks like the other gods of this age are more powerful. It seems like they're winning, doesn't it? I mean, if we didn't have the Bible, wouldn't you think that the false gods are winning? You would think. Well, here Isaiah is going to give us a beautiful, powerful picture of the God they are to behold. So verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who? Who is so large that the oceans are just in the palm of his hand and he weighs mountains like dust on a scale? Like, oh, we need a little bit more to balance the scale. Give me a mountain. (laughs) This is your God that you are to behold. 13. Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who Taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. The rhetorical answer is no one has taught God anything. Behold, the nations, I think they're all that, are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Coastlands is believed just to be the continents. He just takes up the continents like fine dust. That was easy. Lebanon, which was well forested area, it would be like saying Yosemite or Yellowstone for us. Okay, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. That's how great God is. You can't burn every tree in the national forest and offer every animal in the national forest to suffice his greatness. 17 All the nations are as nothing before him, they are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Ah, an idol! A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains? He's being funny, right? I hope he catches humor. Like, oh yeah, an idol that you have to make. That's clearly as good as this God. And then verse 20, um, assuming that this idolater is too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot, he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Obviously, Isaiah is saying this God's way better than any alternative. So 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they, the rulers of the earth, scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Remember? All flesh is like grass. So so even the mightiest ruler in Babylon who's conquered everybody, even he's going to perish before his feet get rooted, before he even takes his roots. It's going to be so quick. 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them by name? Which, by the way, um, have you guys ever looked into, like, uh, 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 what's the the astronomy? astronomy? Astrology is a bad one, right? Yeah, okay, astronomy. Anyone, like, looked at the study of the stars before? And you know what they name all the stars out there? Have you ever seen it? They name it like XRN001B2. That's the name of that star. Clever. I'm sure God, when it says he calls them by their name, I'm sure he has actual names for these stars. he's like, XYZ2212B320... That's Priscilla. And then the star, like, flares up at its name, right? That would be cool. (laughs) Calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of the stars is missing. So now here is the worry, right? You've heard the argument. Consider the word of God. Consider the who of God. And now, Isaiah is like, why do you say, O Jacob, concerning all this, why do you speak, O Israel? My way or my trouble is hidden from God, and my right is disregarded by my God. Really? After now, everything you've heard, how do you still say that? So now, his conclusion. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. That's Israel. And if we're in their shoes, and if you're in their shoes now, that's you too, the faint. You're just exhausted by life. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Okay, just a little rabbit trail here. I know I'm youngish. I'm getting gray hair. Don't believe it? Look closer. I have... You know, my, I'm convinced that kids are what age you. You know, it's not time, it's kids. And so sometimes, like you say, people, you're, you're tired, and it doesn't matter how old you are, as long as the person you're talking to is older than you, even by a year, they have this trump card like, "Oh, you just wait, young man. It gets worse, you know? <laughs> I just want to point out that the Bible says even the youths faint and grow weary. OK? It happens. <laughs> but the point is that the strongest amongst us, it doesn't matter our age or where we're from, or our gifts. Everyone, flesh is grass. We grow weary and we faint. So even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But, but. So Isaiah's totally just addressed his whole audience, right? They're all the ones that have fainted, they're weary, they're exhausted. But. They who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength, They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. All flesh will see the glory of God together. But he hasn't seen our troubles. He hasn't acknowledged our rights. Curse the God you're talking about. Ah, but even in your weariness, your exhaustion, even where you've reached the end of your rope and you think you cannot even army crawl another inch and your mouth is full of desert dust, even then they who wait on this God will renew their strength and you will no longer be weary and you shall no longer faint the most powerful imagery here, the wings of eagles. When have you ever seen an eagle that was huffing and puffing with exhaustion and saying, hey Bill, hold my wing up because I am tired of flying. I'm just, I can't do it. Eagles never tire. You never see an eagle wasted on the wayside. And Isaiah says that God will mount us with wings. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Now, here's the thing that I don't know if it was fed to me from songs or from like artwork or if it's just an assumption. But I always imagined that this verse was saying we would hitch a ride on eagles wings and we would soar. Like, we're on the back of an eagle. But it's actually not what it says. It's far more daring and powerful than, call your eagle Uber, he'll pick you up. It's far better than that. I checked. The New King James agrees with the ESV here, and it says, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. We are the ones who are going to hatch wings. We're going to hatch them. We're not simply going to hitch a ride on eagle's wings. We're going to hatch eagle's wings. And I believe that's why it says that those who wait on Yahweh will get this. Because you and I, when we're down or we're exhausted and faint, we are looking for quick fixes, aren't we? I mean, as soon as 2 p.m. hits and you're feeling a little drowsy from lunch, you're going straight for the coffee. We're instantly like, I need a little pick-me-up. But those who wait... Those who stop leaning upon the the grasses of the world to help them, if we wait for Yahweh to come, He will give us the eagle's strength. Now, when an eagle lays an egg, well, that, let's start there. They lay an egg. They don't they don't birth a little eaglet. It's like I'm ready to fly. It's much more like raising children these days. It's there, and you got to care for it, and it lives with you for too long until the eagle, right? You've seen this, or you've read about this. The eagle has to start kicking the kid out of the nest until it learns how to fly, or else it becomes a pancake. Now... That's why we have to wait, is because growth, especially growing wings, takes time. And it's not comfortable. You get the little awkward bumps on your shoulders, and you're like, it's itchy, and the feathers start poking through. Look, it's no cheap business turning humans into new creatures. Not creatures that can run faster, but creatures that can now sprout wings and fly that takes time it takes effort it takes us willing it takes our willingness to walk with god through wherever he's taking us i'm like but why babylon and why this person and why them and god's like because your wings are growing those who wait on yahweh will rise up with those wings now go to exodus chapter 19 if you will Exodus is the second book of the Bible, so it shouldn't be too hard to get to. Exodus 19, speaking of this whole, like, away in the wilderness and this whole second Exodus idea, Israel had just been delivered from Egypt. They crossed through the Red Sea miraculously. The Egyptians are buried beneath its waters. They've walked through the wilderness for some time and have complained, eh, we're weary of this manna. Or actually, they were just hungry, and then they get manna. And like, eh, we're thirsty, and then God gives them water. Then in chapter 19, they come to Mount Sinai. And look at 19, verse 4. God calls out from the mountain. So well, we should start verse 3, why not? 19, 3. While Moses went up to God... Uh, that's a weird place to start a verse. When well, Moses went up to God, period... Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So here in the first exodus, he bears them on his wings Then, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses is giving his last words, his dying sermon. And in Deuteronomy 32 verse 10, he says this about God's people. 32.10 He found Israel, or Jacob, in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness. God encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Yahweh alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He made him to ride on the high places of the land and ate the produce of the field and so forth. There, Moses is saying that Israel was like the little hatchling, the little eaglet. And that they were kicked out of the nest, out of Egypt... And that God swooped down and bore them on his wings, because that's what an eagle will do to teach the young ones how to fly, is they, they throw them out like, I can't fly yet! And then the eagle comes and catches them on their, on their wings, and they keep doing this until the eagle learns how to fly. And so what we've seen is God carries Israel out of Egypt on his wings, and now we're growing up, and he's delivering us from our new bondage, and he's saying, this time you're gonna grow the wings. This time, I will bounce you on my wings if I need to until you learn, but you are going to now become new creatures. And that, that's the difference. That's what Jesus is doing as he's leading us through the wilderness on his way. This is not just, hey, now you have happy things to think about. It's actually, I am going to transform you into entirely different sorts of creatures. And we're going to call you sons, sons. And daughters of God. That's what you're becoming. I know it's not easy. You're a son of Adam. You're a daughter of Eve. But you will become a son of God, a daughter of God. So, there's going to be some times when you f- are in free fall. There's going to be some times when you're going to feel like, God doesn't see my rights. Where are my rights? Why don't you see my troubles? It's like, Why don't you see that you're growing wings? And then one day you'll use them and you'll get it, friends. We can fly. That's what Isaiah is trying to tell them. Is, but but we don't want to cross this wilderness. It's scary, and God hasn't like really acknowledged my hurts. But He's giving you wings. You have no excuse. Like we can fly over this wilderness. Go for it. Isaiah is saying. You've seen that His word outlasts everything. You've seen who He is. That He even has the stars numbered. Not even astronomers can do that. He's named. Did he numbered? I mean named. He's named all the stars. Like, This is the God who's growing wings for you so that you will not be real weary and you will not faint. So you can fly. The difference is we're not simply thinking of the happiest things. It's the same as having wings. Not quite. We're learning to wait on the king of kings. That is having wings. Learning to wait on the king of kings is your wings waiting on him patiently letting the wings grow unfurl get their feathers try them out so that like you actually have muscles to flap waiting it's hard we're microwave americans it's hard but those who wait on yahweh shall renew their strength shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Father, we pray for that strength to be renewed in us.